and, and as we look at Hosea today, I, I want to warn is not maybe the right way, but just alert you to the fact that today is PG-13. Um, so just be aware of that, that when we read here uh, the book of Hosea, uh, it's pretty direct. And so be ready for that uh, as we begin. And, and I want to tell you a little bit about, about Hosea. Uh, he was a prophet and a preacher, actually, uh, for about 50 or 60 years, Hosea uh, prophesied and preached uh, during uh, the reign of a number of important kings. We're going to read about them. And he prophesied to both the northern kingdom, uh, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Um, the king that was in charge during Hosea's reign of the northern kingdom, that's Israel, was Jeroboam II. Um, in the southern kingdom, there were actually four kings that reigned uh, during his, uh, his ministry. Uh, those included Uzziah. Some of you might recognize that name. If you remember anything about the book of Isaiah, you, most people remember one chapter out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 6. And it starts with, in the year that King Uzziah died. And Isaiah 6 is about the moment where Isaiah gets drawn up uh, to experience the throne room of heaven. So Isaiah and Hosea were contemporaries along with Amos. So the, these three prophets were all contemporaries. So uh, King Uzziah uh, for Judah as well as Hezekiah. Uh, he's the other more popular uh, king in the Old Testament because he was one of those guys that realized the country was going in the wrong direction. Uh, tore his robe, and turned the country back towards God. And, and so that's kind of who he is. And this whole book, the book of Hosea, is primarily geared towards that northern kingdom, Israel, and, and their rebellion against God. And, and that's really the, the whole premise of the book. Hosea himself uh, becomes a metaphor uh, for the nation of Israel uh, and God, for God's pursuit of the nation of Israel, and, and God's pursuit uh, of you and me. Even when we are unfaithful, even when we're rebellious, even when we go against God's standard, God is continually pursuing us. And that's what this book is all about. Because in Israel, during Hosea's time, the 700s BC is whenever he lived, uh, the 700s BC, it was a, a great time. It was the best of times. There was wealth in the nation. Uh, there was national security. There was a vibrant religious life. Uh, the challenge is the people were empty. Uh, they were corrupt. Uh, they were shallow and petty. And God is ready to enact his judgment upon them. And so he calls his prophet Hosea. Uh, to marry a woman named Gomer, and to have three kids. And their family life uh, becomes a metaphor for what God wants to do with the entire nation of Israel. And so if you've got your Bible, open to Hosea chapter 1. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 1 and, and read to verse 5 and look at Hosea's marriage briefly and his firstborn son. It says this in Hosea 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, here comes the PG-13, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Aren't you glad you came today? So here this opening scene is. We find out a little bit about Hosea that he prophesied during these kings, as I mentioned. And then God has this very direct command of Hosea. In our context, it would be, hey, Hosea, I need you to go to Las Vegas. That's how it start. So I want you to go, not want, you're commanded to go and marry this woman who will be a cheater, an adulteress, who, who will be unfaithful to you. I want you to go marry her and have kids that will also represent that unfaithfulness. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I, I don't know what Hosea is thinking here at this moment. God, are you sure? You got the right guy? Maybe that's Amos you should be telling to. <laughs> like, imagine yourself in that situation. Go and marry a person who will prove unfaithful to you. This is a wild command of God. A crazy command. But remember, Hosea himself is a metaphor for what, who God is to the entire nation of Israel. And so Hosea, I want you as my representative, as my prophet I want you to demonstrate unfailing, unconditional, never-ending love to this one, this woman, who will be an adulteress, who will be a cheater, who will forsake you. And so God is demonstrating his character and who he is. But he's also reminding us that his call for obedience is always very clear. God isn't nebulous with Hosea here. He, he's not sort of shifty. No, he is direct. There, there's no way that you could be confused by God's command of Hosea. God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of second-guessing and so when God calls us to obey him, to follow him, it is always clear and direct. And so Hosea obeys God, and he marries Gomer. And now they end up having three kids, and how they have those three kids, it's the same pattern in the, in the scriptures. Remember, we're dealing with an oral culture, so when this story is being shared, it's being spoken, and so 
From an oral perspective, there's a, there's a pattern here so that people remember how it should go. And so the pattern is there's a, there's a divine instruction every time, divine instruction. God tells them to do something. And then there's a birth notice. You're going to have a child. And then there's a divine instruction about what the child's name should be. And then there's an explanation of that name all three times. And so he has this son, a son they have together. We know that because she bore him a son, verse 3 says. Call his name Jezreel. Well, Jezreel means God sows or God scatters like seed he throws. But the implication here is kind of twofold. One is that the people of Israel will be scattered. They're going to they're be scattered across the known world in a, in a not so friendly kind of way. Just like when the police show up at a party, there's some scattering going on to the four winds. Or when you go to the old fishing cabin or hunting cabin and you step in for the first time and you turn the light on, there's some scattering that usually happens on the floor. That kind of idea, like it's, it, it's, swift and quick and it's going to be everywhere like they're, they're gone but but he spends some time here this kind of this double meaning about Jehu and the the house of uh, of Jehu in the valley of Jezreel if you study your old testament there was a great dishonor to God when it came to Jehu and his military conquests and so God is reminding the nation of Israel that those those actions will not go unpunished. There will be a military defeat connected to the valley of Jezreel, the real place of Jezreel. And we'll see how that plays out even at the end of this chapter. But not only will the people be scattered, they'll be sent from their homes, but there's also going to be a defeat. There's going to be destruction. And in 722 B.C., remember I said Hosea prophesied during the 700s B.C. In 722 B.C., Samaria falls, and Samaria was a part of Israel. It falls, and God's people are scattered. It's overtaken by foreigners. And so this comes true. And God's people are scattered. And it's a constant reminder as Hosea's children are named, the reminder of their unfaithfulness and God's response to their unfaithfulness. How they, the nation of Israel, broke that relationship, the covenant relationship, a relationship that God had said all the way back to Abraham, that you'll be my people and I will be your God. And this is a reminder of how they've broken it. And there's coming judgment. Our sin should be a reminder of our own rebellion and God's pursuit of us, even in our rebellion. Now, we have the benefit with that statement that our sin, when, when we know that we said something, thought something, didn't act in the way we should, we don't walk in humility and grace and kindness and love when we get angry, when we're mad, when we say things we shouldn't, when we do things that we know are completely wrong. We know that's a reminder of our rebellion. But on this side 
of the cross, of the cross of Christ. Sometimes it's easy for us to dismiss our rebellion, to, to, to minimize it, and say, oh, well, Jesus died for my sin, I'm good, and we cheapen the grace of God. We cheapen God's love for us. I hope that as we look through Hosea, one of the minor prophets, not because he's less important, but because his book is short, that's why they're called the minor prophets, that they would be reminded how serious our sin is. That we'd be reminded that, that we only have to call on Jesus. That he is the one that covers our sin. That his death on the cross paid the penalty of our sin. There was a high cost to sin. For the nation of Israel, their high cost of sin was that they were scattered and that God for a season took his hand off of them. For us, the high cost of our sin is the death of Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty that we could not pay. And so I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to ever say to cheapen that and to say, oh, I'm good because I got Jesus. No, may our sin constantly push us back to the one who is pursuing us, our heavenly father. So that we would not be scattered, but we would drawn together. And so if it weren't enough that, that Hosea has a son named Jezreel that says the people are gonna be scattered, he has a, a daughter and another son, and we're not quite sure if those two children actually belong to him. Because the way it's written is slightly different. If you look back at verse 3, it says, she conceived and bore him a son. But let's pick it up in verse 6 and see the difference in the language. She conceived again, verse 6 says, and bore a daughter. The, to him is not on there. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will have no I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, that means she was probably two or three years old, she conceived and bore a son and the Lord said, call his name, not my people. In the Hebrew, it's lo-ami, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is a strange kind of wild one chapter. God tells them that he doesn't want anything to do with them anymore and then he says, but one day, 
We're all going to be a great, happy family together again. But he speaks about this daughter, no mercy, no love. And and though the name Jezreel and kind of the surrounding of that, there's some little ambiguity, like what does he actually mean? Is it it about this valley of Jezreel, the real place? Or is it uh, about God scattering the people? Is it this military defeat? There's no ambiguity here. God is no longer going to have pity. He's no longer going to have compassion. He's no longer going to show care. He no longer is going to have mercy and love toward his people. There'll be no deliverance from their enemies. The northern kingdom is finished. They're done. The southern kingdom will be spared, but the northern kingdom will not be spared. I will have no mercy on them. This is hard. This is hard reading because this is not how we think about God at all. Because we think about God in terms of his son, Jesus Christ, who came to serve and to have compassion. He had compassion on the people. They were a sheep without a shepherd. He gave his life for them. We look at the New Testament and we see all the ways in which God constantly pursues us. And yet here, it's very clear that there's a point in which God will release you to your sin. There's a point where God releases us to our sin. And it says, thank you, but you're on your own. And if you don't believe that, look at Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one is very clear on that. God turned them over to their sin. Even later in the New Testament, Paul talks about church life. There comes a point in in someone's life where their sin is so obvious and rebellious that we have to release them. We have to let them go into their sin in in prayer that that they would hit rock bottom, that they would realize where they've gone wrong, how, how they've destroyed the heart of God, how they've damaged the people of God, and it will turn them back. So it's a tremendous reminder to us that though we would all agree that we're faithless sometimes, that we're unfaithful to God. We're we're all guilty of that. That we would remember those occasions and we would turn and turn from our sin back to our heavenly father so that he would show us mercy and grace, that he would have compassion on us in our weakness, in our frailty, in our humanity, in our sin. Aren't you glad you came to church today? But this is the hard stuff of what it means. And we look at this scripture and we look at the Old Testament, we think, man, this is rough. And we have to put this in alignment with what Jesus has done for us. But the prophets are tremendous examples to us of how God is constantly pursuing us in love, but how his justice and his righteousness, his holiness matter. It's important. His covenant matters. And to cheapen that, whether it's the Old Testament covenant of the nation of Israel 
or it's our covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a costly covenant. And this book, the book of Hosea and most of the prophets are, have kind of this nationalistic idea because he's talking about my people, the whole nation of Israel. And the people of Israel, they were the God's chosen people. And so it's this nationalistic idea. And today, we don't have that. No, today, the people of God are the church. Not a country, not a people group. No, it's the church. All those who would follow after the name of Jesus Christ. Those are the people of God. And so that we collectively as a people as a people of faith, that that we would be in pursuit of God and not running in rebellion. But also that we as individuals, in the quietness of our own home, in the solitude of our car, that we would be people who didn't act like the nation of Israel and Look great on the outside, be dead on the inside. That's the, that's the calling of Hosea, that we wouldn't abandon who we are. Because God desires relationship with all of us, with every person. He desired it so much with the nation of Israel that he, he committed himself to the nation of Israel He said it three times, at least three times in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy. He said this, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. He had a covenant that he'd established with the nation of Israel. He has a covenant that he's established with you and me. And that covenant is his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to shed his blood so that you and I would be forgiven our sin. And here, he says, but we've come to a point in our relationship, Israel, that you're no longer my people. When Hosea's third child is born, he's named not my people. Not my people, lo a me. Lo means not. The relationship is done. In the original translation, it actually is a very unique phrase. It's actually, I am not, I am to you. So those are all caps. But in When God spoke, he said, I am, I am. And so he tells the nation of Israel in this moment, I'm no longer I am to you. I'm no longer God to you. I'm no longer Yahweh to you. It's done. The way we would say it in modern language is God is divorcing his people. That's what it is. God's divorcing his people. He's severing that covenant because of their sin, because of their rejection of the law, because their disregard, because their lack of thought given to the one who chose them as his people. 
And so now that you're all just pumped up and excited about your relationship with God and his love for you, as is the case in every book of prophecy, every one of these prophets, there's a ray of hope. There's a ray of hope. And that's what verses 10 and 11 are about. Because though God desires to scatter his people, to release his people, to say, you're no longer mine, he still loves them unconditionally. He still pursues them even when they run, even when they're scattered, even when they are not his any longer. And God is going to remain faithful to his promise. If you don't hear anything else today, hear that. God is faithful to his promise. Always. Because you will be the children of the living God. That's who you and I are. We're children of the living God. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're a child of the living God. And maybe today you're here and there's some rebellion in your life. Maybe there's something going on and, and you are at odds with God or with your siblings, your parents, a friend, a spouse, someone. And you're rebelling against God. There's some sin in your life that you know to be true And you do everything you can to ignore it, to push it away. And yet God or someone else keeps reminding you of it. And the reason why that is is because he's faithful to his promise to love you, to call you to holiness, to keep you in the seat of righteousness, to gather you again Because God is true to his promise. He's faithful to us. And he will relentlessly pursue us. It reminds me of a, of a story. Ben actually shared it with me this week. Of a couple who had been married a long, long time. But they had an old pickup truck. And they had had that pickup truck their entire married life. And when they were first dating and married... The husband would drive and had a bench, bench seat and the wife would sit, we'll again keep it PG, hip to hip, sit close and they would ride along the road and have a grand time. And as the years progressed, the wife moved a little more towards the middle of the seat. And then after some time and some decades, she ended up by the window And one day she raised the question. She goes, you know, honey, we used to sit right next to each other in this old truck. And the husband said, well, dear, I haven't moved. That's what God is saying to us. And unlike the husband, perhaps, 
Every time we move a little bit away from him, God is reaching to pull us back. And sometimes he uses people like are in this room. He might use his word to do that. He might use a song. He might use a stranger to draw us back to him. But that's what he's doing all the time. Every time we take a step away from him, he's pursuing us to come back. But it gives us the freedom to say no. And the nation of Israel had said no and no and no and no and no. And there came a point where there was a consequence to their sin. And the consequence was they were scattered. The consequence was that they were going to experience judgment. They weren't going to see love and mercy anymore for a season. That, that God was going to release them to their sin. And then one day he would pull them back together. And so this morning, as you consider the book of Hosea, you consider your own spiritual standing. Is God pursuing you right now? The answer is yes for all of us, no matter where you are. He's pursuing all of us, and he loves you unconditionally. Without condition, he loves you. But his desire for you is to walk in holiness, to walk in righteousness, to walk in harmony with one another, to love those who are not loved, to extend grace and mercy wherever you go, just like he did, to, to serve, not to be served, to think on things above, things that are lovely and true and good. to walk in the light and not in the darkness so that one day we can all declare with great joy, we are children of the living God. That's my hope for each of us, that we would receive the unconditional pursuit of God and hang with him and never walk away never turn our back. We'd live in that wonderful spot of holiness and grace and maturity so that he won't have to call somebody to say, go show them what they're doing. Go show them what they're doing. And that never be said of us that he will be faithful to his promise and we will be faithful to our promise to him. That's my hope for each of us. Will you pray with me?